My title for you this morning is simply Christian Assurance. Christian Assurance. In the late 80s and 90s, John MacArthur was famously engaged in an academic debate with other theologians. The debate was centered around this issue. Is someone who is saved always saved, no matter what? Can someone lose their salvation once they have it? Or is there a guarantee of some kind when someone is saved, that means they won't or can't lose it, regardless of their lifestyle and or allegiance to Jesus. As you might imagine, the academic exercise had a very real and practical implication on the church in general. How should people feel and what should people think if those who are supposed to be well-informed and highly intelligent about Christianity can't even agree on something as simple as whether or not someone retains their salvation once they're saved. Eventually, the debate garnered the title, The Lordship Salvation. This culminated in a couple of books, The Gospel According to Jesus, what is Authentic Faith, which was published in 88, and Faith Works, the Gospel According to the Apostles, which was published in 93. In his book, Faith Works, MacArthur writes the following, 20th century Christianity has tended to take a minimalistic approach to the gospel. Unfortunately, the legitimate desire to express the heart of the gospel clearly has given way to a less wholesome endeavor. It is a campaign to distill the essentials of the message to the barest possible terms. The glorious gospel of Christ, which Paul called the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, includes all the truth of Christ. But American evangelicalism tends to regard the gospel as a, quote, plan of salvation. We have reduced the message to a list of facts stated in the fewest possible words and getting fewer all the time. Church, what we're battling is easy believism what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It's the idea that we can accept Jesus in our hearts, whatever that means, because it's not a biblical phrase. But live however we want, even after we supposedly have accepted Jesus in our heart, while somehow knowing that we're still, quote, going to heaven. Friends, this isn't biblical. To believe in Jesus is to believe that he is not only our Savior, but that he is the Lord. And that each and every day we should look more and more like him because salvation isn't merely about justification, being counted as righteous, but also about sanctification, being grown in righteousness. Again, MacArthur writes, and I quote, the belief that someone could be a true Christian while that person's whole lifestyle, value system, speech, and attitude 
are marked by a stubborn refusal to surrender to Christ as Lord is a notion that shouldn't even need to be refuted. And yet we do. Nevertheless, this argument doesn't mean that there isn't Christian assurance offered to Christians in the Bible. What it does mean, however, is that in the phrase Christian assurance, the emphasis is on Christian, not assurance. In other words, assurance of forgiveness and salvation in heaven isn't offered to just anyone. It's exclusively offered to those who have placed their faith in Christ and live as a result in accordance with his will. Or to put it plainly, and to state it into the negative, if someone says that they're a Christian, but lives a life that doesn't reflect the presence and power of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's no reason that that person should expect assurance. I have two points for us this morning from 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. What we should know, and secondly, what we should believe what we should know, and secondly, what we should believe. Of course it stopped. First point, verses 19 to 22, is this, what we should know. Verse 19 says, By this we shall what? Know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he, what, knows everything, Beloved, if our hearts condemn us, excuse me, do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask of him, because he, uh, 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 we receive whatever we ask of him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, etc. So first of all, John reminds the church that there are some things that we should know. This isn't foreign to John. He's already said things like this. They're going to come up on one of these screens. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because there is no lie of the truth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Church, I've said it before and I'll say it again, Christianity isn't an ignorant faith. It's a faith based upon God's self-revelation and therefore it's full of truth and grace and beauty. While each and every one of us is free to believe whatever he or she wants to believe, that so-called freedom doesn't verify the truthfulness of our beliefs. We can be sincere about our beliefs and be sincerely wrong. If you want to believe the truth, then you must saturate your mind and your heart with the word of God. Because as Jesus says in John 17, 17, God's word is truth. Therefore, we are obligated to know him 
We are obligated to know Jesus. We are obligated to know the ministry of the Spirit. We are obligated to know the Word. And if we don't know these things, then we are ignorant of Christianity and of Christ, and there is only one remedy for that, and that is repent and believe the gospel. So John continues, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, for, who, uh, yeah, for whoever our, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. There's a couple things that I want you to note in this text. First, I want you to note the issue of reassurance. The issue of reassurance. John says that, quote, by this, our hearts are reassured before God. By what? By the fact that we know the truth and love others. You remember what we learned last week, that Christ loved us, verse 16, laid down his life for us, and that we, following his example and in turn, should love the brothers and sisters in Christ just as Jesus loved us. If we do, John says, then we have reassurance before him. That's the context of verse 19. The reassurance that we have is a result of being in Christ and living as Christ calls us to. But second, the issue of confidence is introduced. We got firstly the issue of reassurance and secondly the issue of confidence. John says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Even when we are genuine Christians connected to Christ and baptized by God the Holy Spirit, we can fall short of who he calls us to be and what he calls us to do. Amen? We are sinners, and we have established that numerous times throughout the study of 1 John. But when that's the case, when we as Christians fall short of his calling for us, and we know it. And when we lack confidence because we know it. And when our hearts are negative in their assessment of who we are because we know it. God is still greater. And what he knows is more important because he knows how much? Everything. It is his word that matters eternally, not ours, even if we personally feel like we are justified. F.F. F. Bruce writes that there are times when our hearts can only be hushed by the overruling edict of God, which says, if you are his, then you are his, even during terrible seasons or terrible disappointment. Our consciences aren't fallible, church. They aren't perfect, but God's eternal word is. And if God says that those who are in Christ are saved from beginning to end, then they are saved from beginning to end, even if their hearts condemn them. Regardless of whether or not they feel like they're saved, regardless of whether or not they're confident in their salvation, regardless of whether or not they themselves are convinced in their own hearts at any given moment, if a person is genuinely saved, then regardless of all of those things, then they are saved, period. 
This has more to do, church, with God's love than ours. This has more to do with God, period, than it does with us. Because God will never stop loving us. I love the note that Gerhard Voss, theologian from some years ago, said in regards to this. He says, God will never stop loving us because God never started loving us. And he quotes Jeremiah 31, verse 3, which says, This is what the Lord says. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Well, you know what eternal love. Eternal means no start, no finish. And he borrows from this verse and he says, look, God is telling his people, I've loved you with an eternal love, which means he can't stop loving us because he never started loving us. This is a weighty conversation. But just think about it for a moment. That might be how our love works, that it starts and stops and it gets hot and gets cold, but that's not how my father's love works. And before we move on, I want you to look at verse 22. It says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This isn't God's arm twisted behind his back because we're so good. That's not what's happening here. No, we're being obedient to his will, and when you're in God's will, your will is in alignment with God's will, and you can ask for whatever you want in any situation, and you'll receive it because your will is in alignment with God's will, and God always answers those kinds of prayers in the affirmative. So we talked about what we should know. We should know that no matter how we feel, even if when our heart condemns us, we're safe with God. But I also want to talk to you this morning, secondly, about what we should believe. This is found in verses 23 and 24. You can look at it, secondly and finally, at what John tells us Christians should believe. Indeed, what anyone who would be a Christian must believe Verses 23 and 24 read like this. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, there's a couple of things that I want you to note here. First of all, I want you to note the commandment. I want you to note the commandment. That's found in verse 23, and the commandment is nothing new. Verse 23 says, this is his commandment. That we, what's the word? Uh, We're going to do it again. I want you to see it. This is his commandment that we what? Believe in the name of, the son, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That's the commandment. It's nothing new. We so often have come across this that thinkers try to complicate the simple. It's the simple, exclusive message of the gospel. It's simple. It's plain. Love Jesus. Love others. If you don't love Jesus, you're not a Christian. It's the way it works. 
But furthermore, if you don't love the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, you may not be a Christian then either. Forget about assurance. Why would you want to spend eternity with a Jesus you don't love? But also, we're called to love others. This is his commandment. Believe on the Son and love others. One thing that I can't wrap my head around these days is how so-called Christians presumably want to spend an eternity in heaven with other Christians, but don't want to spend two hours on Sunday with them. It's a joke. We are to love one another, and we are to spur one another on in good works. That's what Hebrews 10.25 says. Don't forsake the assembly. Come together and encourage each other in love and in good works. But second, we not only see the command, we see the commitment. The word abide happens here again. Look at verse uh, 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he gave us. We see here in a word, the commitment. God doesn't leave his people, but neither do his faithful people leave him. This is not a one-sided conversation or a one-sided relationship. This is the kind of life we see so often portrayed when it comes to Christianity. God's going to save me anyway. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I can't lose my salvation. Listen, that's a mentality that we have to beware of. Of course you don't lose your salvation, but saved people live like saved people. You don't do whatever you want with complete disregard to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and say, even though I don't care to spend a minute with them or their people, I will go to heaven. That's not biblical. That's heresy. That's demonic. Because as many people as the enemy can get to think like that, that's how many people are not pushing back darkness because they think they're okay. We are in him, John says, and he is in us. And this is guaranteed by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. He says, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The NIV puts it like this. We know it by the spirit he gave us. In other words, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, and here in chapter 3, verse 24, we get the same idea. The Spirit is the guarantee of our faith. Such a beautiful word that Paul chooses to use in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. The word guarantee is the word that's also used in extra-biblical literature as engagement. It's the promise the promise that God has made that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Who is the promise? God the Holy Spirit. 
Now, in today's society, we're fascinated by possession and obsession and oppression and every other kind of so-called demonic activity that takes place. But we need to remember that we as Christians are possessed by God. We're possessed by God, namely God the Holy Spirit. And that being possessed by God serves a purpose. It is a guarantee of our eternal salvation, that thing that we look forward to. But in Spite, excuse me, and including that eternal salvation that it promises us and guarantees us, it also provides us the conviction and the encouragement to live life today as if we're going to eternity tomorrow. That is so important to Christian assurance. Listen, spiritual life and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Spiritual life and obedience are two sides of the same coin. We are spiritual because God the Holy Spirit lives within us, not because we read a Deepak Chopra book. We're obedient, not because we want to earn our right standing with God, but because we've been graciously given a right standing with God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to say, church, is this. Our assurance as Christians isn't rooted or tied to how good we are. Our assurance as Christians is tied to how good God is. Our assurance as Christians isn't rooted or tied to how holy we are. Our assurance as Christians is tied to how holy God is. Our assurance as Christians isn't tied or rooted in how faithful we are. Our assurance as Christians is tied and rooted to how faithful God is to his own promises. To close, let me say this. There is Christian assurance offered to us in the Bible. What it means, however, is that the emphasis is on Christian, not assurance. In other words, assurance of forgiveness and salvation and heaven isn't offered to just anyone. It's exclusively offered to those who have placed their faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, and live in accordance with that faith. Even when their hearts and consciences trouble them, I don't know if you've ever been there, I've been there. Even when they've failed and feel like they're the worst sinner in the world. Don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there. God is greater than our self-condemnation. He knows all things, which is to say that he knows that we are his. To put it plainly, if someone says that they are a Christian, but they live a life that doesn't reflect the power and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's no reason to presume that that person has assurance. I want to finish with this quote. If we can set our hearts at rest by remembering that God is greater than our hearts and knows everything, then our hearts will no longer condemn us. And then we shall be able to approach God with boldness. Church, this is a challenging message. It's a challenging message because we are fed two different lines of communication. One line that is very orthodox and very straight and narrow, and another one that is very broad and diluted. I don't know where you are 
in particular. But I know where God is. God is saying that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And furthermore, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord and is saved lives a life that reflects that truth. Now, you might be doing an absolutely stupendous job as a Christian. If you are, you're probably in the wrong church. This is a hospital for sick people. We don't like perfect people. They make us look bad. We're all growing, right? We're all challenging ourselves and each other, and we have come under the conviction of God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We have been encouraged positively. We have been convicted negatively and everything in between. Sometimes we have felt very confident about our faith, and sometimes we have felt very condemned. But that doesn't necessarily mean we aren't in Christ. God knows all things, and he's greater than our heart. But my encouragement to you today is to assess where you are and to leave with better clarity. 